Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good afternoon. This is William Jackson, and again, I want to thank you for joining our discussion this afternoon. Uh, Today is Wednesday, and it is July 17th, 2013, and I'm your host this afternoon. We are going to have a great discussion with a wonderful young man that is going to talk to us about the Trayvon Martin trial. And there are many questions related to the trial that have been unanswered. Um, There are many questions that the public has in relation to the Stand Your Ground law and to other laws that have an effect on the trial itself and also in people being uh, community uh, watchers in their community. Uh, My name is William Jackson. I am here in Jacksonville, Florida, and it is a pleasure to be a part of this discussion and lead this discussion. I want to thank Leslie Gift for the opportunity to be a host, and we're looking for a wonderful afternoon of discussion. The young man that we have as a guest this afternoon is NAACP civil rights attorney Richard St. Paul. He will be joining us momentarily. But before he joins us, I would like to give a little information about him so that we all understand who he is and his background. Mr. St. Paul, counsel to the Voters' Rights Defense Fund, counsel to Cesar Rule in the landmark case of United States and Cesar Rule versus Village of Porchester, 2006, just to give a background of some of his accomplishments of the past. Mr. St. Paul has worked in the White House under the Clinton administration on Capitol Hill in the office of Congressman Shaka Fatah and in the House of Governor of Pennsylvania with Todd Rich. There's quite extensive information about his accomplishments but we want to focus on the past trial with Trayvon Martin. Check to see if Mr. St. Paul is online with us. Sir, are you there? Yes, I am. Great. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Glad you were able to um, to make it in with us. Thank you very much. No, happy to be here. Great. Um, what I would like to um, do is at first um, for you to give us a little bit of background information about yourself. Um, I shared that you're an NAACP civil rights attorney, and you're in New York. Is that correct? That's that's correct. I uh, I'm an attorney. I practice in areas civil rights, excessive force, police brutality cases, voting rights, employment discrimination. A former elected official. I've uh, also worked uh, all over the government, from the White House, Capitol Hill, to uh, the governor's office. So I've, I've managed both political and uh, legal affairs into my lifetime. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, we have been in discussion about the um, Trayvon Martin trial, and one of the things that we wanted to talk about uh, were actually two two important things. One was the jury instructions, and I think there was some confusion um, about the jury instructions as far as them having questions and also um, elaborating on this, the law stands your ground. So if you could take some time to um, to discuss both of those, we would really appreciate it. Sure. So the jury got received two charges. The first charge we know was murder in the second degree, and the lesser charge uh, would be the manslaughter. And, that, and since a weapon was used, it would be aggravated uh, manslaughter. So it basically would carry a term of 25 to 30 years. That's the manslaughter charge. 
looking at murder in the second degree, the state had to prove that Zimmerman essentially wanted to, well, that Zimmerman essentially murdered Trayvon in cold blood, that he had a depraved heart and regard for life, okay? And the manslaughter charge, now normally under Florida law, the manslaughter charge would be that uh, gross negligence for the health and safety of an individual. An example of manslaughter would be vehicular manslaughter. You get drunk, you get behind the wheel, you kill somebody. Uh, another example would be you fire a shot into the crowd, somebody dies, or you're driving 80 miles down New York City, passing red lights, and you hit somebody. That is a gross gross negligence towards the health and safety, health safety of another person. Okay. Okay. The jury received the charge of the murder in the second degree, and the manslaughter charge, which was essentially, was the person killed and was the defendant responsible for killing them? That okay. was a very brutal charge because, what, like I said, in Florida law, the manslaughter would be gross negligence towards health and safety. So the jury charge with the manslaughter was, was the person killed and was the defendant responsible? And we all know that, that the defendant was responsible for killing them. He didn't deny that. Right. Now, the jury moved past murder in a second degree because they didn't find the ill will, the depraved heart, basically the murder of Trayvon and Cold Blood. They went to manslaughter. And if they found that the defendant was guilty of manslaughter, and I'm talking about in their deliberation, then they had right. to discuss whether that death or the homicide, well, homicide is a killing of any human being. It doesn't matter whether it's by knife, gun, or whatever. A homicide is a killing of a human being. So they had to determine whether that homicide was justifiable, okay? So then that's when they looked at self-defense, okay? So my thought is, and having worked on uh, worked with juries and cases, uh, that part of the discussion was, okay, well, we, we know that he did kill Trayvon, but did he was, was the death of Trayvon excusable or justifiable? They looked at the, uh, they looked at the, the uh, self-defense. And they, in order to look at the self-defense, they had to determine whether Zimmerman reasonably believed that he was, his life was in jeopardy or he was in, in, uh, he was in fear of seriously bodily injury. Okay. Of course, based on that, they believe that, yes, they were the homicide committee. Zimmerman did kill somebody, but he was justified in that killing because he believed himself to be in harm. Okay. And my question is, along with what you were saying, um, the legality of following. So so we start back from when Zimmerman was in his vehicle, and we learned that he was instructed not to follow Trayvon or not to approach Trayvon, and he got out of his vehicle and actually approached Trayvon. How does that stand in, in legal standing or legal justification for him to get out of his vehicle and, and approach Trayvon. It's like, wouldn't he have had a cause or a reason to actually do that? Right. So he's a neighborhood watch person, so he obviously can report an issue. Uh, as you know, as we found out, that the neighborhood watch program, they did not encourage the neighborhood people who were part of the program to follow or to interact with you know, an individual. They they, right. they, were, they should call the police. But we, we you may recall from the trial that the 911 tape where Zimmerman calls in and says, uh, you know, that he sees a guy who looks suspicious, wearing a hoodie, hoodie, so forth and so on, and 911 operator says, are you following him? And he says, Zimmerman says, yes. And the 911 operator says, we don't need you to do that. Zimmerman says, Okay. Now, right. from that point in time, we then only have the information that Janelle, Trayvon's friend, told us about and the information on another 911 call that in which the neighbor of Thurman calls and says, you know, I hear people coming from help. So that said, we really don't know if Zimmerman stopped following Trayvon or continued following Trayvon. What okay. we do know, Thurman says, I didn't, you know, I was heading back to my vehicle, 
and Trayvon came out of nowhere, asked me, Zimmerman says, uh, that Trayvon said, do you have a problem? Zimmerman says no, and Zimmerman then says in his statement to the police that Trayvon said, now you do, and punches him in the nose. So Zimmerman was that I wasn't following him. I was going back to my vehicle, and it was Trayvon who was the aggressor. Okay? And so we don't really have information. You know, again, I didn't sit on the jury, but based on following the case, information that says that Zimmerman was the aggressor. So right there you create reasonable doubts in terms of whether or not, because you don't have all the information, and when you don't have all the information, the the defendant gets the favor of that. In other words, okay, creates a reasonable doubt, and a reasonable doubt is, is in the defendant's favor. So whenever you find that, you know, you don't have all the facts, that's a benefit to the defendant, and that creates reasonable doubt over the, for the jury. Mm-hmm. Right. So during the, during the course of the trial, as uh, Trayvon's friend um, was describing um, during her questioning that she she did incorrect if I'm incorrect that Trayvon that she did not believe Trayvon was the aggressor that Zimmerman was the aggressor. If Zimmerman was the aggressor, um, isn't Trayvon allowed to defend himself from bodily harm from Zimmerman? Absolutely, that's right. So, and, but she and she's the only one that testifies to this, right? So that we know that. She says that she heard Trayvon, if I recall correctly, say, you know, get off me. And then the phone went And then we had, since that phone went dead, there were approximately four minutes that we don't know what happened at that point in time until we hear the 911 call uh, in which you hear somebody screaming for help. So now the problem with her testimony is that she was impeached because she said that she had went to the hospital when, in fact, she did not go to the hospital. Uh, and so that weakened her credibility. Now, as the, the prosecution should have brought this information out uh, ahead of time, uh, and, you know, because you, want to, you, you don't want the jury to be surprised. You want them to bring information. You want to be able to control the witness. You want the information the jury to hear not to come as a surprise when the defense brings it out. So you put all the right. negative stuff, that stuff out on your own witness, for example, you know, there are witnesses who uh, testify who are arrested and they're cooperating witnesses, let's say, at a mob trial, uh, and they say, well, you know, aren't you, have you been convicted before? Yes, we've been convicted before, uh, whatever crime, so forth and so on. So you want to put the bad stuff out so the jury isn't surprised and it, 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 it helps the credibility of your witness. You don't want the defense coming out with the bad stuff because it hurts the credibility of your witness. I think this is what happened with Chappelle. Her testimony could have been so much more, but her credibility was was hurt. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that because a lot of people have, you know, they they have this uh, have the, in some cases, a misperce- misperception of the line of questioning and where the questioning was going as far as the stalking or the being the aggressor or the self defense aspect of it because. Um, from my understanding in the, in the law, um, and I'm going to read it and, and maybe you can clarify it, a defendant in Florida cannot claim self-defense if he initially provokes the use of force against himself unless he either withdraws from the conflict and conveys the withdrawal to the other party. So even before, you know, the confrontation, I guess Zimmerman must have had in, in his mind if he actually did approach um, Trayvon that he had the right to do that, seeing that in his mind he was trying to protect his community because he said he didn't recognize Trayvon, he didn't know Trayvon. But would that would that be a form of aggression or perceived aggression if Zimmerman actually did approach Trayvon um, as was stated? And I don't think it would. Uh, now, if we look at the history of what took place in the neighborhood, so we found out during the trial and during the course of this, this case that the, the neighborhood in which Zimmerman lived in suffered uh, a rash of burglaries over the past 18 months. Okay? We know also that an African-American male was arrested for some of those burglaries. 
we found out that there was an African-American male, allegedly, who stole a bike off a German um, porch. Uh, and that's the day that Trayvon was killed, that he is a young African-American male uh, and was not living there but staying in the property. Right. So, you know, and I hate to get into hypotheticals, so perhaps, uh, you know, Zimmerman was profiling and saying, okay, I see a guy here, uh, and he doesn't look familiar, and he's a black male. Now, I, I want to add in there that the 911 operator said, you know, well, what can you describe the person? And that's when he said, you know, I, I think he's black. Okay. But no, not before that did Zimmerman say, yeah, there's a black guy here looking very suspicious. Now, whether that was intentional or it, it was just that he really believed this guy was, that Trayvon was just suspicious, uh, we don't know. We don't know if it was just based on because he was black or just be, or, or based on if he was suspicious and wasn't familiar with, with him that Zimmerman decided to call 911. Okay. So, so there definitely was, I think, a, a predisposition to Zimmerman in terms of people coming into the neighborhood, especially if they're unknown to him and they're a person of color because of what happened previously with these burglaries. And I think... I think when you tie in his statement that says, you know, these uh, effing punks, these a-holes all away with this, it seems like we don't we don't know if he was talking about black folks, but but if hypothetically speaking, looking at the rash of burglaries and who he who was arrested and 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 you know who he thought to commit it, it could be yes, he was, those effing punks typically were young were uh, was a black man. Um, okay, but, but now with the, not to cut you off, but, but with with the rash of burglaries and with the statement that Zimmerman, Zimmerman had made, wouldn't then that make it considered that Zimmerman would be an aggressor towards Trayvon? No, because the thing is, though, we don't have any information except for Janelle's statement, Trayvon, that's friend, uh, that says that that even alludes to the fact that that. Uh, Zimmerman touched Trayvon because remember Janelle says I heard Trayvon say you know get off me and the phone went dead so that's the only information we have we don't have any DNA uh, really that that Zimmerman grabbed onto Trayvon mm -hmm. it just, we don't have really any other information besides that one statement uh, and like I said her credibility was hurt so it's, we don't know the truthfulness of that statement um, and I said we I should say the jury, uh, you know, would give wouldn't wouldn't necessarily give full faith and credit to that particular statement because of her, her credibility okay. issue. Uh, but now, when the jury was given instructions, do you think the jury the jury from the judge was given sufficient instructions for them to understand the role of an aggressor in that in that case? Well, I think that they did have an understanding uh, of the aggressor, um, and that they just didn't seem like, and, and again, I, this is from me following it, it's my opinion, okay. that there was enough information to show that Zimmerman was the aggressor. Besides, one, calling the police, following uh, Trayvon, up until the point where he says, after the 911 operator said, okay, he headed back, he says he headed back to his car, and then Trayvon came out and asked him if he had a problem and attacked him. So we don't really have the information in there to say that Zimmerman provoked him to the point of Zimmerman actually putting hands on him. The only one who, who seems to tie that statement, seems to tie that in, is Janelle, who says, I heard somebody, I heard Trayvon say, get off me. Okay. That's it. That's, that's all. So it's hard to even find the information based on my observation of the trial to show that Zimmerman was the provoker. I mean, following a person should not provoke someone to turn around and hit him or to have a physical confrontation with the person. You can't, because somebody's walking behind you, calling the police, does not mean you can turn around and, and physically assault the person. Now, I'm not saying that that happened in this case, but I'm just right. saying that... that that's not provocation enough, uh, and that's you know that that wouldn't be 
you know, for you to confront the person in a physical manner. Now, certainly you could turn around and say, you know, are you following me? Why are you following me? Uh, right. That's, but uh, to be physical uh, because the person is following you, calling the police, looking at you, uh, as we learned the term, you know, you creep, this creepy, you know, behind mm-hmm. crap, uh, you know, that's not, that's not provocation enough to be physical with a person. All right, well, now, now let me let me take it to another way. Um, as being a parent, if I taught my child, um, hello, yeah, I still have you. Oh, there you go. Yeah, okay. Now I got had another call, but um, technical problems. But if if I had a child that was, let's say, 8, 9, or 10, and I instructed them that if they felt threatened in any way and somebody was following them, all right, that if they were walking away from the person or running away from the person and the person pursued them, so you're saying that that they don't have the right to turn around and confront that person um, in any way if they feel that they're being threatened with physical harm. Well, now that you put it that way, if they feel like they're being threatened with physical harm and it's a reasonable threat, for example, right. the example you get, if somebody's following you, you start running, and then they start running after you. Okay? Right. If they brandish a weapon and they're running after you, uh, according to Florida, well, you can stand your ground. And and if you're fear of death or serious bodily injury, you can take action and defend yourself. Okay. Uh, in New York, you have a duty to retreat. The only time you can use self-defense is if you cannot retreat. Okay. So in that okay. example, in that example that you gave with somebody following you and then you start running and they keep they running after you, obviously, yeah. reasonably, you're going to be on alert and, and, and possibly fearful that somebody is running after you. If it's not the police, you know who this person is. Right. I mean, oh, and then this guy, if you stop running, sorry, if you stop running or this person catches up to you and confronts you and physically touches you, then you have the right to, to, to defend yourself. Absolutely. And I, and I know from um, from interviews that Zimmerman has had in the past, um, I think it was on Hannity, he said that, that he stated that um, he was following Trayvon. Trayvon was running away from him, and but he still pursued him. And I believe in, in the way he framed it, in, in his mindset, that he had already mentally thought that Trayvon was doing something that he had no business doing, so he was following Trayvon, and Trayvon was running away from him. So did Zimmerman still have legal grounds to pursue him during the course of that, and also did Trayvon have personal right to protection, if Zimmerman was still pursuing him to turn around with Trayvon being 17 to confront Zimmerman about that and he felt the need to protect himself legally, could, couldn't he have protected himself? Well, on the Hannity show, which I watched also, uh, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, we definitely admit that, Zimmerman definitely admits that he was following Trayvon, he, remember the 9-1 operator said, are you following him? And he said, yes. And then he said, uh, then the 9-1 operator said, okay, well, we don't need you to do that. And then Zimmerman said, okay. Now, also in the call, he said that he would meet the 9-1 operators at the clubhouse. Now, never right. made it, of course, uh, nor was he able to identify any addresses. Uh, there, perhaps, and again, this is would be speculation on my part that you know uh, Zimmerman continued to look for and that look for where Trayvon went because if I recall correctly, there was a point in time when Zimmerman had stated that he just disappeared somewhere. He cut through okay. a backyard, something uh, that Trayvon cut through a backyard. Um, so there's no doubt that Zimmerman went as a uh, watch officer for the complex, that he that he wanted to make a difference. He, he, he was a guy that applied for the police department um, and, you know, 
wanted to make a difference and you know, wanted to go after, you know, quote, quote unquote, these, these punks uh, that come into his neighborhood. So, you know, in, in that sense, uh, that's why he started following, uh, you know, Trayvon instead of, and had to be told to stop. Uh, right. Please, you know, handle the, the issue. Okay. In your opinion, um, do you think if, if Zimmerman did not have a weapon, he would not have followed him, or he would he would have continued the, the pursuit of Trayvon? You know, I think that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think that, you know, there, there's no information that, you know, Zimmerman pulled out his weapon before, uh, before him and Trayvon got into a, a struggle. Right. Uh, and so, you know, perhaps, you know, having a weapon gave him a, a sense of confidence uh, that he wouldn't otherwise have, which, you know, if you look at some stuff, and I'm not a profiler, FBI profile, but if you look at some stuff where you had Zimmerman um, uh, coach, for mixed martial arts testified right. that for one ten he was a one, you know, closer to a you know point five in terms of throwing punches and defending himself. Uh, which, honestly speaking, in, in my opinion, in Zimmerman with a four or five, this case we would have never heard of this case and would end up differently. But you know, it was my opinion that because Zimmerman was couldn't fight was was a loss that. Yeah, he, he possibly could have felt like his life was in jeopardy because he could defend himself, and the only thing way he can defend himself was with his weapon, right? Uh, which Florida law allows you to do. So yeah, uh, because you know when when talking with Zimmerman um, in interviews that he had, you know, people learned that he wanted to be in law enforcement um, so he can you know he can hunt fugitives. He can hunt, you know, the bad guys and, and arrest people that were doing things illegally. So we, he already, in his mind, his psyche had this idea of what he wanted to do, but he just did not have the, the physical abilities or physical skills to actually um, to be a law enforcement person. So, you know, in his, in his mind of watching the neighborhood community and having a firearm, I guess it, that it did, did give him a sense of power and it did give him a sense of purpose. So the, the other question is, because you do have a firearm and you are a community watch person, what laws are out there associated with stand your ground would give you validity to actually have that type of, and I can't say it's a, it's a job, but with that type of position to actually patrol an area that you're armed in a community that does have children and teenagers. So the Florida governor, uh, Rick Scott, put together a commission uh, to led by a lieutenant governor who's an African-American, African-American female. And this commission was a, was based on the Stand Your Ground Law to review the law and make recommendations. Part of the recommendation from this particular uh, committee was that for neighborhood watch programs, they have to have written policies, and, and that the policies would have to say that that the person could not provoke the uh, individual uh, that they were reporting on, or approach the individual that they were reporting on. So restrict. It would basically go right to the essence of this case right now. Uh, okay. So that was one of the recommendations by the Florida Governor's Committee. Right. Okay. Can't provoke. If you're a neighborhood watch program, you don't have policies, and you can't provoke or approach a person that, that you're reporting. Okay, leave that up to the police. Otherwise, you could be found guilty of something. The other recommendation they made was more education on the Stand Your Ground Law and, and how it should be used. Uh, okay. So, you know, that, you know, I'm, I'm very much into proactive steps. Because there's nothing we can do about the death of Trayvon. We can only make things better to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And we can honor Trayvon with, you know, ensuring that his legacy and his story will always be told and that this doesn't happen again. So I think those are steps in the right direction with the, with the commission um, in terms, again, the, the restrictions.
restrictions on what you can do as a neighborhood watch person uh, when you're reporting a person who's suspicious, and two, educating people about the pain ground law. Right. So, what do you think about um, going back a little bit uh, with the Department of Ju- with the with the Department of Justice and the potential for federal charges um, in civil rights violations um, against Trayvon Martin? Okay. So, in order for the Justice Department to have jurisdiction in this matter, uh, it has to be by federal statute. You know, we're talking about the Civil Rights Act of '64, Voting Rights Act of '65. Uh, the, the U.S. Constitution. So when you look at the criminals, criminal section of the Justice Department Civil Rights Division, okay, so the Civil Rights uh, Division of the Justice Department, they have a criminal section. Now, the criminal section deals with several things. They deal with hate crimes, interference, okay. interference with, with reproductive rights, interference with voting rights, um, and there is one other uh, criteria to try to think of, uh, excessive force cases. In other words, police police uh, officers abusing their power, Rodney King case, for example. Okay, okay. right. Well, those are not the, the areas. I think there's one more, but it doesn't relate to the case. Those are the areas in which the criminal section of the Civil Rights Department or the Justice Department can investigate. Now, we know that the Justice Department was involved in this investigation, but they stopped their investigation because the State Attorney General's Office of Florida took the case and prosecuted Zimmer. They right. are, the Justice Department is now investigating again. But I don't think that there's going to be enough information uh, based on the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice to take this okay. matter. Because when you look at the criteria I just laid out, that is of hate crime, interference with reproductive rights, interference with voting rights, excessive force, right. uh, their jurisdiction, you don't. It's hard to find that there was a hate crime here because when we watched the trial and listened to the trial and basically picked apart Zimmerman's life, we didn't really find any evidence that showed that he was a racist, that he didn't like black people. And, and in fact, okay. you may have found the opposite. And I say that that because we found out that, uh, and, and, that and when I say we, I mean the public is out there for people to read about, that he opened up a business which which failed, uh, an insurance business with a friend of his who's African-American, that he stood up for the African the, the rights of, of an African-American who was homeless, who was, this African-American who was homeless was assaulted by right. a police officer, and Zimmerman went to town hall to criticize and ask that, to criticize the investigation until there's an act that the police officer's son who beat the African-American homeless man be arrested. So, you know, again, in order to have a hate crime, we have to, we know it has to be motivated by hate, by race, by sexual orientation, so forth. And, and right. we just haven't seen that information yet. But that's certainly what the Department of Justice will be looking for. Okay. Even motivated by, by hate, that it was motivated right. essentially by but now, but wouldn't some of the, wouldn't some of the, the comments that Zimmerman made um, reference to um, the kids being coons and some other references that he made um, would that also, could that also play a part in you know the Justice Department looking into I mean even though he went to court to, to help someone but his comments that he stated um, you know about you know, about blacks using the term coons and some other comments that he made, could that also be used to bring charges against him or further investigation? This is certainly what they will look at, uh, absolutely. Okay. Again, the murder has to be motivated by hate, and so that has to be the first and right. foremost. So there, okay. there has to be something that happened during that incident uh, that, you know, would be, that he could be charged with a hate crime, because it has to be in you know, uh, pursuing these statements have to be made in the, in the pursuing of the particular action. So, you, you know, while you're attacking someone, you know, I, I hate N, you know, the N-word. So you, you F an N person. Uh, uh, you know, what are you doing in my neighborhood? I'm going to kill you. Uh, that type of, that is, that is the hate crime that would have to right. happen during the, during the commission of the act. Okay. 
Well, let, let me take a step back a little bit um, during the course of the trial, and there were several discussions about the, the judge and his directions or instructions to the jury, and that maybe the jury uh, did not fully understand, um, as we were talking about, the aggressor role, the stand-your-ground law, and actually how they could proceed that to um, to make a, a, a judgment with Zimmerman um, bringing the trial to the end. So during your observations, do you think the jury received sufficient information about the stand-your-ground law, about um, Zimmerman being the aggressor, as we talked about, and about um, Trey Bond being able to defend himself? Because it seemed that the jury really didn't get a full understanding of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of the questions, they had a question, but then it was so they had to be specific so what was your perception on, on the, the amount of information the jury was given and the true understanding that they have of the of the charges or the ruling that they could have against Zimmerman? So we know that the jury asked for more specific information about man. Well, the jury asked about manslaughter, and the judge then wrote, "What what specific question do you have about manslaughter?" And the jury just decided not to uh, respond, okay? So, you know what? It is. Having, uh, you know, I've gone through, been in juries and gone through jury charges, and, you know, some of them are 30 or 40 pages, take about an hour to read, uh, and, and even as for attorneys, it's like, okay, well, you know, we work with language, but it, you know, right. even for us who, Agree. Okay, this should be the language. Sometimes, you know, it's it's it, sometimes it's difficult to interpret, and you have to go back and and make sure that the wording is correct because any word that's off could mean the difference between uh, you know a not guilty and a guilty, or uh, a verdict in favor of the plaintiff or for the defendant. So uh, it's not very easy because there's a lot of legalese, and, and jurors are, are mostly lay people, and they don't have they don't come in contact with the legal world. So could there okay. have some confusion for the jury? Perhaps. And I say perhaps is because they do have the opportunity to come back and ask questions. And they did this time, but they decided not to follow up on the question. And right. that's the decision they had to make. I don't know if they, they got it, they figured it out at, they figured it out at the end, or they were still, you know, confused, but we will have a better idea of I'm thinking a better idea of what happened in the jury room as we as we go down the line. Uh, okay. and, and I'm down the line. I mean, in time, we've already heard from one juror, B37, uh, and I, I suppose we'll probably in the future hear from more jurors about right. about their decision and what they think, because only they can tell us what took place back there and what they you know and why they thought what they thought and why they came up with a not guilty verdict. Um, but so the act provocation piece, I, I just don't. I think that there was reasonable doubt that was created in their minds that Thurman was the aggressor. Uh, so there, because again, what information do we have that ties it in that says that he's the aggressor? Okay, we know he was following Trayvon, and Trayvon, according to Janelle, his best friend, was aware that he was following and looking at him. But that's no. There's no law. There's no crime that's broken there. Right. So, no. so do you think the um, the, the self de- the self defense part um, for Trayvon Martin to defend himself in self defense, or the stand your ground aspect, um, which was discussed in length, was um, one of the key points that the jury focused upon. Right. So that's exactly what they focused on. Is that the stand your ground, which is actually self-defense. In law school, we didn't have a stand your ground you know, instruction. Uh, it was self-defense. Uh, and, you know, stand your ground, even in, if you go to, you know, a, a Florida law school, you're talking about self-defense. But stand your ground was kind of a popular term that the media used. Uh, now, what we did learn in law school was something called the castle doctrine, which is a man or a woman has the right to defend their castle. There is no retreat right. in your your castle. Uh, but but the, the, the stand your ground law is, is something that 
you know, you wouldn't that you wouldn't necessarily learn in, in school or in law school. It would be something called self-defense, and yes, okay. that was a big factor for the jury, in my belief, that they believe that uh, their men thought reasonably thought that he was in fear and then had the right to defend himself. Because when you look at the when you look at the evidence that was produced, right, the, even right. on the prosecution and the defense side, information from experts, from doctors, from coroner, information said information was given that Trayvon at the time of the shooting, Trayvon was on top of Zimmerman. The, the defense then said that they made it they made a very good point in terms of saying, well, Trayvon wasn't armed. But in fact, when you bang someone's head into concrete, that is a weapon. The concrete mm-hmm. is a weapon that they use. So I think that right there, when it when the defense illustrated that, and when you have experts saying that Trayvon was on top of Zimmerman, that helped build a picture for the jury that uh, you know Trayvon was in control of the situation, and what Zimmerman says that you know he was being beat up, and that he you know that uh, he saw he his weapon was shown, and he saw Trayvon looked at, looked at the weapon, and that's when he thought he was going to get his weapon, and that's when he, he shot uh, Trayvon because he feared for his life. Okay. So when the jury looks and hears this information from experts saying that Trayvon is on top, and again, these are both prosecution and defendant witnesses who said this, who were experts, uh, who said that Trayvon was on top, and then that you look at Zimmerman's uh, you know, head and face, so there are some injuries. Uh, perhaps the back of the head was superficial in terms of what's that deep and what's that damaging. But uh-huh. add that statement by Zimmerman that says, you know, uh, my weapon was shown and, uh, you know, Trayvon saw it. I believe he saw it and he was going to go for it, and that's when I shot him. Okay. What, when what you look at the sorry, I'm sorry. No, I said when you look at all of that, you know, the, the jury can't, can come to a reasonable conclusion that Zimmer was trying to defend himself. Right. Now, again, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, This is Leslie Giss. I'm on the line, and how are you? Thank you for calling in, and uh, William, you're doing a wonderful job. I want to thank you. I'm trying to move away from what we speculate happened, and I really want to focus on the law. Um, Tell us about why... Do judges give juries instructions? Why is that important? Could you ask that question? Sure. So jurors have to be instructed on the law, and the only person that can instruct a jury on the law is the judge. Okay? So mm-hmm. what the prosecution and defense does is they bring out the facts of the case. Their job is to bring out the facts of the case. The jury then applies the facts to the law that's given to the judge, given by the judge. And that's essentially how it works. So through the facts that, that we laid out, then match the law, and in the criminal court, the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. So when we look at the Zimmerman case, you know, was Zimmerman guilty of, of depraved, heart, ill, indifference, murdering Trayvon and cold blood, um, Beyond a reason, though, was he guilty of that? And the jury said, well, no. Looking at the facts, we don't think so. Then the jury says, what about manslaughter? Okay. Beyond a reasonable doubt, was he convicted, was he, you know, was Zimmerman guilty of uh, killing Trayvon? Well, okay, yes, he did kill him. Now, was that killing justifiable or excusable? Yes, we believe it was justifiable because Zimmerman believed he was uh, and serious harm, uh, or, or he, he was going to suffer serious harm or death as a, uh, as a result of the confrontation. So we believe this homicide was justified. Okay. Um, the follow-up question is, for the jury instructions, it was a 27-page jury instruction um, package, mm-hmm. and the judge read it out. I watched it. She read the whole 27 pages. Mm-hmm. And she specifically said, stand your ground um, emphatically to the jurors. That's part mm-hmm. one. Part two, wasn't the stand your ground law 
or defense waived? And number three, why did include within the jury instructions the entire self-defense law or explanation instead of just stacking parts, bits and parts of the law so that it would favor George Zimmerman? Three-part question. Okay, so uh, let me see if I can answer that all. All right, so we don't, the judge gives the jury instructions uh, that are agreed upon by the plaintiff, I'm sorry, by the uh, prosecution and defendant. They come together and say, okay, here's what the law is. Now, there's something called jury instructions. There are these books in which they, they call patent jury instructions. Okay, every state has them pretty much, right? So you go to that book and you pull out jury instructions for both criminal and civil law, and then the prosecution and defense get together based on these patent jury instructions and say, okay, here's what you go to the judge to read to the jury. Now, the jurors then have to interpret that themselves, and if they have questions, they have to ask the judge. Uh, in terms of the, the self-defense law, yes, they're going to, the defense has a right to, uh, in this case, uh, in many other cases, uh, ask for a jury instruction for self-defense, if that's what they're claiming, because the defense has a right to a defense, and their defense, as we know in this case, was self-defense, okay? So there's a right to have that particular jury instruction read to the jurors. Now, the, the defendant also, Zimmerman was also entitled to a stand-your-ground hearing, okay? The defense waived that stand-your-ground hearing, and decided to bring up self-defense at the actual trial. Now, why they did that, it could range anything from it's less costly to if uh, to you know not wanting to bring all the information out during the standing ground law uh, hearing, and then uh, have to have this trial also uh, potentially. So, you know, because you don't want to have the prosecution and the defense attorney have two bites at the apple. Let's just do it at one one setting uh, instead of having a standing ground hearing um, and then doing the trial, too. So, again, I'm just speculating about why the defense did not do the standing ground hearing but actually went right for the actual hearing on murder in the second degree. Uh, did I miss something in terms of your answer? Yes. Um, the, the jury instructions did not include the entire self-defense explanation. They left out this part specifically. A defendant in Florida cannot claim self-defense if he initially provokes the use of force against himself unless he either withdraws from the conflict and conveys the withdrawal to the other party or uses reasonable escape options to avoid death or great bodily harm. In other words, and then it goes on. Why would they not include this, which is very clear, but include um, I can't say right now, but include the self-stand-your-ground um, uh, explanation. And from what I've read in the Huffington um, Post article, uh, the explanations and instructions, it was really stacked against uh, Trayvon, it was more so in favor of um, Zimmerman. Well, just just the definition that you, that you read there would, would based on the provocation, would actually sound like it would be more in favor of uh, of, of uh, Zimmerman because a lot of folks believe that he provoked the action by, you know, following Trayvon. Um, now, again, as I said earlier, the prosecution... No, this was not included. What I read to you was not in the instruction. Oh, not included. Okay. Not included. All right. Okay, so... Again, at the end of the day, why it's not included, I can't tell you. But at the end of the day, the prosecution and the defense have the ability to agree on what would be included. Why it wasn't included, I don't know. But again, this is something that they, the prosecution and defense can agree upon. Uh, and if they can't, then the judge can put it in. So I, I think that that's certainly something that, you know, would be a better question towards the prosecution for why it wasn't included. Uh, and perhaps there wasn't enough information in there to include it. And I say information, there wasn't enough information or facts during the trial 
that would necessitate that particular part of the charge being read. And that's the, that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, no, there's not, there's not going to be any recourse. Prosecution doesn't get a, a second bite at the apple. Uh, and as I said before, they agreed, the defense and the prosecution agreed. So no, no court is going to overturn that. No appeals board is going to overturn that. Uh, when is there, there any punishment? Can, you, can, can the lawyers or the prosecutor or the judge, can anyone be punished for no, some prob- type of um, misconduct or being incompetent? Uh, prosecutors uh, essentially uh, are immune uh, when, they're, when they're doing their job, uh, so are judges. But there are on very few occasions in which um, a, prosec- a prosecutor can be charged with prosecutorial uh, misconduct. Now, if we remember the Duke case uh, that involved no. Duke, the lacrosse uh, students. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, I remember. Uh, the African-American woman who was allegedly a stripper, and mm-hmm. the case was brought by pro- the prosecutor, Mike Bayfong, uh, and he was later uh, disbarred for prosecutorial misconduct, essentially, you know, uh, hiding evidence uh, from the defense, you know, that type of stuff, yes. If that type of stuff happened, um, there are consequences. Uh, but when you talk about a judgment call, uh, no. When you talk about, the, and this is what it seems like, that this is a judgment call on the prosecution, uh, for example, it's my opinion that the prosecution overcharged Zimmerman with murder in the second degree, especially because they were basing it off of two statements, which in my opinion wasn't enough that they should have just went in with the manslaughter charge. That type of judgment call is, is not going to get, you know, prosecuted uh, or not going to get addressed. But there's also information that the prosecutor, uh, the state attorney general, uh, I believe her name is Corey or Angela Corey or something like that, uh, did not give information to the defense or was withholding information from the defense. And that, that was the pictures of Trayvon with a, allegedly a handgun and smoking marijuana. That was not turned over to the defense, uh, despite being requested. Now, the defense, Preserverman, has asked for sanctions, and they will follow up. And those sanctions could include anything from money, that the prosecution has to pay money for the time the, the uh, defense spent uh, you know, fighting the motion to get the sanctions, or you know, disbarment or uh, admonishment, um, which basically is, you know, don't tell that you were wrong and, and don't do that again. So there's still a part of the case that will all be ongoing, and that's the part I just talked about, which is where the prosecution didn't hand information over to the defense. But in terms of the prosecution making judgment calls about strategy, they're going to have immunity. How you know? How do they determine which character flaw or good character B? How do they weigh this? So we have, as, as people know, something called the rules of evidence, uh, in which we use to determine what's admissible, uh, what's not, what's relevant, and what's not. So, for example, in going through George Zimmerman, there was a big disagreement between the prosecution and defense whether or not the teacher who taught George Zimmerman a a legal class in which it was mentioned, self-defense or standard ground law was mentioned, should be able to testify. So the... Finally, the prosecution went over to have the um, person, the teacher called to talk about uh, what he taught during his class and what Zimmerman may have learned. And I say may because we don't know if Zimmerman was there that day. Uh, we don't know if he was paying attention, so forth and so on. So this type of thing would be, you know, considered a, you know, character uh, it would go to Zimmerman's character, his, his habit, his and credibility, his credibility uh, that exactly right. And so you're allowed to attack somebody's credibility um, when it comes to uh, a case. And we saw uh, the credibility of, of each witness in, uh, being uh, that the defense or prosecution tried to impugn. So uh, right down to... Uh, Trayvon's father, uh, whether or not he heard let's his get back uh, to, Let's get back to Zimmerman. Voice. 
Is it true that he has was it is it true that he had prior arrest? Yes, yes it is. So Zimmerman was arrested uh for resisting arrest uh because he tried to interfere with one of his friends uh, who was being arrested. Uh and Zimmerman was uh was arrested. The you know, that information comes out, it has to be relevant. Um and sometimes, you know, it stuff that we think is relevant isn't necessarily relevant to the case. But and sometimes it's also true stuff he was is more prejud- prejudicial, mm-hmm. if, especially if a lot of times things are more prejudicial than they are probative, which means that, that if anybody hears this, that it would basically change their mind and there's nothing to, that you can do to rehabilitate the jury's mind if they hear this information. Mm-hmm. Now, we know on the opposite mm-hmm. side for Trayvon, they brought in the fact that they found some marijuana in his system. But uh, let's get back to Zimmerman. What about if is it true that he was also involved with some sort of domestic violence? Yes, that is true. Um okay. that is true that there was a domestic violence incident. Um okay. yeah. mm-hmm. So if if the prosecutor is trying to show who is the aggressor, yeah, he had a ten year difference in age, oh nearly a hundred pounds uh difference in weight. We have someone who is physically fit going way beyond what is reasonable to become physically fit, violent method to lose his weight, um, and he's carrying a gun. Wouldn't that all be uh, facts that should be admissible to show his credibility for one and his aggressive behavior since they left out aggressive part of the self-defense law? They left it out. Wouldn't it be important well, remember, to bring those things Zimmerman up? Zimmerman never testified. The only way he testified was through documents, uh, through statements that he signed uh, to the police and through the video that was admitted, uh, you know, where he told the police about what happened. So he, if he was to testify, you know, that may have come into play. Uh, but mm-hmm. he never he never testified. Um, and so, therefore, we were limited. He couldn't cross-examine him. And he couldn't necessarily uh, cross-examine the statements that he made. Um, well, certainly you could bring in. Uh, I mean, you yeah, could bring in people to testify, uh, like his mother, his father testified, his wife could have testified to certain information. I'm talking about the prosecutor side. The prosecutor couldn't they have searched that his, um, the so you know, the victim of this uh, domestic abuse. Sure, sure they could have, but then. The question is, what relevance would it serve in this case? Would it what, would it show that he is a a bad guy and that he wanted to to kill, uh, you know, Trayvon, or would it show that, uh, you know, would it be more prejudicial uh, uh, and probative? Now, if in fact Zerman had done something like this before, where he, uh, you know, was found to uh, uh, use a weapon before, or uh, to hurt to hurt somebody, um, or he didn't like, you know, he was preconceived or, uh, to the notion that uh, you know, black people were bad, and you know, he told somebody this that he didn't like black people, uh, he didn't like them in his neighborhood, and if he saw them, he would shoot them. That type of stuff is relevant to the to the uh, actions at hand. Okay, so. That's that's just the way the court of law works. It's what information do we have that would be relevant to show that Zimmerman has a habit or routine or is predisposed to committing this type of crime? And you know, domestic uh, the arrest for domestic violence doesn't translate to uh, bringing this information into this particular case because this is not a domestic violence case. I'm sorry. Um, we have. The juror, the one juror who was out talking, she said that in her mind, even though Trayvon is dead and she wasn't there, that she believes that Trayvon was the aggressor and struck Zimmerman first. As a prosecutor, if you have to prove that uh, this defendant was the one who struck first, you should be able to bring up incidents where he actually hit someone first. And if well, if he was accused of hitting up a, a law enforcement agent, and if he was accused of striking a woman, 
why would he not, you know, strike a kid first that he is chasing, calling him a, a punk and a uh, MF and an a-hole? Why wouldn't it be so hard to jump from him using that foul language to describe uh, Trayvon? And then he has this history of violence, allegedly. You know, why wouldn't a, a real prosecutor that's trying to win a case tie those strings together for the jury. Mm-hmm. So, and that, now that's an interesting point. If you can show that Zimmerman had a history of provoking uh, fights, uh, then that certainly would potentially be something that uh, should be brought in. And again, it has to be close in time. So you can't look at mm-hmm. something that happened 10 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, it could only be a couple years, right, uh, in order for it to be you know, admissible. Um, and so in that sense, yes, if, if you can show that Zimmerman had a history of, of provoking um, or starting fights, or, uh, you know, that certainly could have been a, a, a relevant question would determine at that time whether the facts giving both uh, given by both of the parties necessitates an arrest based on the law in which they're knowledgeable of. So does does what in there essentially does what happened at this that particular event uh fit into a crime that is an arrestable offense or an offense in which the person should be issued a summons. So that typically would ha- would happen. I'll take one more question then I have to go. Yes, I was gonna say that was the very last question. And um, would you be able to give us your contact information? I want to thank you for spending so much time and going into depth because this show is called Black History University, so we we are really trying to get as much education as we can um, no for more reasons than one. So can you give the audience your contact information if you want? Sure, sure. sure. I can. Uh, you can email me at uh, r st paul law r s t p a u l L-A-W, at gmail.com. Thank you again, and I hope to be able to invite you. My uh, host, he had to run, uh, and that's why I had to take over the questions. But thanks again. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.